Hi, I'm Edward Vessel, and I study neuroaesthetics. You're listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. This is Robin Renee, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hi, I'm Wendy Sheridan, and welcome to episode 104. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, ha- what has been happening in the last uh, two weeks since we spoke to our audience? Oh, uh, well, um, my daughter's moving back home with her dog and her boyfriend, so my house is completely this. <laughs> in a shambles. So, so that's, that's a that's, big change. Yes. It's been consuming all of my energy this wow. week. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I feel like all at once I entered the pre almost pre COVID world again. Wow. And it happened very quickly and it was, it's been very strange. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I went to a drag show last cool. weekend, I guess it was. It was an outdoor thing, which was which was fun. And it was like the first time kind of in a crowd of people, you know, um, in a while, which was sort of big. And then went to the beach, spent some time with a friend, went to um, a dance yesterday, Sunday. Um, mm-hmm. We're recording this Monday. And that was another outdoor dance thing in Philadelphia with a bunch of just sort of the new wave dance crowd who I <laughs> hang out with and haven't seen in, you know, all this time. That was great. And Devo tickets went on sale for Radio City. Oh, wow. And I got tickets when for is, Devo Radio City in September. Okay. So it's like, wow, there are things to look forward to that are going to be inside buildings with bands I used to go see all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it was very strange. It was like one thing happened and then like all of the world rushed back into kind of something like how it used to be. And it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, you reminded me. I I went to a, a concert on Sunday morning. Uh, it's my daughter's one of my daughter's bands. She's I think in two at the moment. Uh, okay. This one's called Wishy Washy, and they had an outdoor gig outside of a coffee shop on the little street downtown that's been blocked off to pedestrian to traffic. So it's like a pedestrian area, and they built like an outdoor dining area in the middle of the street. My my job was to record everything with my fancy camera, which the internal microphone is way better than I thought it was. And it's a really high-res video. <laughs> I really <laughs> love this camera. So that was fun. And I got to actually hug a bunch of people I hadn't seen in months. And, and yeah, so that was nice. Very, very cool. <laughs> well, <laughs> we have... We've got a lot of good stuff coming up in this show, and if if for patrons, we have our, our June exclusive is going to be another episode of We Should Be Recording This, and it, we're going to talk about what has changed and what we've learned since the beginning of COVID, so it's uh, it dovetails a little bit with what we've just been talking about here. Yeah. We got so some facts? Yeah, we do. My first fact 
is capuchin monkeys pee on their hands to wash their feet. Why don't they just pee on their feet? I know. I was thinking about that. Why don't they just pee on their feet? Maybe it's harder for them to pee on their feet. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, okay. That's an interesting fact. And here's one. Uh, the establishment of gut flora is crucial to the health of an adult as well as the functioning of the gastrointestinal tract, um, which we most of us know. But it's interesting. I didn't know that in humans, a gut flora similar to an adult's is formed within one to two years of birth as the microbiota uh, is uh, are acquired through parent-to-child transmission, transfer from food, water, and other environmental sources. So it happens pretty early in life, which is... yeah. And Good. it changes it changes with your partners. Like kissing will cause an exchange of gut bacteria into mm -hmm. it, with each other. And and also if you know, if you're living with somebody and your your diet is the same, you're eating the same food, your gut flora will end up being very similar with each other in in people living in the same house. Right. Yeah, I was actually reading more into it and, and reading about the differences between omnivores to vegetarian to vegans. Mm. Like there are things that are more typical of each and stuff. It's yeah. really interesting. And it's also why once you stop eating meat and then you eat it, suddenly you're going to have some issues in your that guts. Because you would be bad. <laughs> your bacteria is going, wait a minute, we don't know how to, how to deal with this <laughs> right. anymore. <laughs> exactly. What's fact number three? Oh, fact number three is sea otters hold hands while they're sleeping so they don't drift apart. And also don't take food recommendations from sea otters. Because uh, <laughs> I did that. Oh? <laughs> I was at, well, I was at a sushi restaurant in California, sort of like immediately after visiting the Monterey Bay Aquarium, where there's a million sea otters like out in the ocean that you can kind of watch with like the to put the quarter in the binoculars things, you know, you can kind of watch them and, and they're sitting, you know, and I was watching like the little documentary they have there about, and they're all sitting there eating sea urchins and very happy. So I'm in the sushi restaurant and sea urchin is on the menu. And I said, well, if sea otters like it, it must be good. And I have never <laughs> been so wrong in my life because this was the most <laughs> disgusting thing I had ever put in my mouth. So, <laughs> So I learned, you know, animals have a different taste than people and and as cute as they are, it doesn't mean that whatever they're eating is going to taste good to you. A lesson well learned. <laughs> I am fans of these otters on YouTube. Their names are um, Kataro and Hannah. And, and I watch their antics often. So <laughs> maybe we'll do an episode of like all the, all of our weird things that we're watching and listening to lately. That's one of them oh, for me. <laughs> anyway. So up, coming up in this show, we have a mystery guest, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just because, just to be totally honest with you, our scheduling has been a little crazy. <laughs> so I can't exactly tell you who's going to be on this show, but it's going to be cool. I can tell you that. 
But I can say for sure that we, our segment after the interview will be the Artscape and it is featuring Wendy Sheridan. I'm yes. going to interview her about her, her work and I'm looking forward to that. And I'm sure it's going to be amazingly fabulous and erudite and all sorts of things. We haven't recorded it yet. We will be doing that <laughs> as soon as we're done reading the news. But yes, yeah. it's going to be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So before we move on to all the news we can handle, we want to say thanks for listening. And here's how you can keep in touch. And you can catch a new episode of The Leftscape every other Wednesday, more or less. We mm -hmm. are going on a short hiatus, so you're going to hear some uh, other recordings that we've made in the next couple of weeks, but generally new shows every other Wednesday. Subscribe to our show on our website, leftscape.com, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to get automatic downloads so you don't miss a show. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Leftscape. And when you go to our website, check out our show notes, sign up for our monthly newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. Yes, and please join us over on Patreon. Your contributions really help us a lot. And for over on Patreon, we've got extra content to help us keep making the show better. So you can choose from our front row seat tiers. We've got backstage pass, stage door, dressing room, green room, after party, and of course, the elusive hotel room key. <laughs> so thank you so much. And we really do appreciate your support. And here's all the news we can handle. Our first news item is a sad announcement. One of our former coven sisters, Lady Wolf, has died over the weekend, and I know I'm going to miss her. She was a, a woman with a, a huge heart and, and was very a very lovely woman, and I'm going to miss her greatly, and it highlights so much about if you like people, stay the hell in touch with them, because I hadn't spoken to her in at least three years, and I didn't know that she was even sick, so... You know, it's like, I would have loved to catch up with her, and now it's too late. Yeah, Lady Wolf <sighs> was really a cool person. I, I loved her and her husband also, um, yeah. who, who passed away quite a while ago, yes. unfortunately. But I this news was really uh, an unpleasant surprise this morning. Yes. I, had, I didn't know. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, well. Yeah, it's like yeah. I said. You have to keep if in you touch. That's a good stay idea. Stay in touch with the people you care about. Because at some point, they may not be there at all. So, yeah. So, in, in safe travels, news. Lady Wolf. Yes. Yes, Lady Wolf. In other news, <laughs> we the DOJ is upholding religious schools' right, I guess, in quotes, to discriminate against LGBTQ people. <sighs> that is, you know, it's a weird, it's a weird topic for me because... I do believe in the separation of church and state. I abhor discrimination on this kind of basis. And it's a weird conundrum. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, I, I know that you talk about this too, Wendy, that churches, if they're going to benefit from things in society, they should be paying taxes and, yes. and, and you know, subject to all of the, standard laws you know well the rules of human decency at least yeah well yeah you know but that's the thing 
uh, and I, I, it, it just, I don't know. It sounds to me like, like there's just basically more things for people to boycott. I mean, religious schools are private and they are, you have to pay for them out of pocket. So one would hope that any person in, in a class or a category that that particular religion is discriminating against wouldn't be going to support them in any way. You know, they wouldn't be sending their kids there. They wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be going to that church, mm. which kind of, kind of, you know, and I, and I don't know which specific schools are, are, are discriminating against the LGBTQ children or people or whatever, but I, it just is so weird to me that there are so many gay Catholics that I know who haven't left the church, you know, and, and I mean, maybe the, the Catholic schools aren't the ones that are doing this. And well, when I was in Catholic school, there was, you know, I was very out as bisexual in, in junior high school and not so much in high school for exactly that reason, mm. because it was that situation where you could get kicked out for, you could get kicked out for getting pregnant or you could get kicked out for being queer or whatever, you know, there were definitely. Well, yeah. I mean, my stepkids got, my stepsons got kicked out for having earrings and right. they're not gay, but it was just like their mom got their ears pierced and the school said they can't wear the earrings. And she said, fuck you, I'm pulling the kids. Right. So, but yeah, I, I can see this is really awful for any children who have figured out that they're gay and they're stuck in a religious school. I really, really feel bad for these kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And here's just a little bit of the amended filing. It says, the Department of Education is conducting a comprehensive review of its regulations implementing the law, mm. which sets forth the current administration's policy on guaranteeing an educational environment free from discrimination on the basis of sex. So, I mean, they did, they are feeling the backlash from this and it looks like they're looking into it more deeply. So we'll see. It says the filing added, but until the pro that process is complete, it would be premature to conclude that the government is an inadequate representative. So that's, what does that mean? <laughs> well, anyway. Well, that they're I, not representing the, the children getting discriminated against. Right. That's right. what I think it means. Yeah. Uh, but I am not a lawyer, so I could be wrong. It's That's happened. Yeah. If, one or two times. <laughs> That's happened. <laughs> One or two okay. times it's happened that I was wrong. <laughs> also in news that isn't awful, Benjamin Netanyahu has been voted out as of Sunday as Israeli's prime minister. And the new guy is named Naftali Bennett. He's the leader of the new government and he heads a diverse and fragile coalition comprised of eight parties with deep ideological differences, ranging from a small Islamist party to Jewish ultranationalists. Wow, and he said he's prioritizing mending the many rifts dividing Israeli society. So it sounds like Netanyahu was hated so much that the Islamists and like everybody <laughs> the got Jewish nationalists somehow. got together to get rid of him. So that, that says a lot, honestly. But uh, Netanyahu isn't out-out. He's now the opposition party leader. So he's still in the Knesset, which is their governing body. But he has diminished powers. You know, I mean, he's, he's basically still in the government, but he's, he's the head of the minority party, the opposition. So 
we'll see how it goes. And I'm hoping that that this change in their government will help help ease the the Israel Palestine stuff that's been happening. Yeah, we one can hope for sure. Yes. I listen to um, Pod Save the World quite a bit, and they I get a lot of background info about what's happening in Israel and mm. Palestine from there. So I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say about this yeah. this week yeah. for sure. It is Juneteenth this week on Saturday, and that is the anniversary of the date that former slaves in Texas, enslaved people in Texas, got the news that they were no longer enslaved. And that was on June 19th, 1865. Um, Yeah, and this is a holiday that people in Texas have celebrated for a long time, Black folks in Texas for the most part. And it's it really has expanded. I, it's something that I didn't grow up knowing about too much. And it's really, I'm really grateful for the different events that I find around the Philadelphia area for Juneteenth these yeah. days. And, and it's becoming a state holiday. And I know, I think it is a state holiday in Texas and it's starting to yeah, well, expand. It's, we had a, a big Juneteenth celebration at City Hall last year. You know, everybody was masked. It was because of one of the the politically active black women in our town. Her mom was from Texas. So she kind of brought Juneteenth here to Rahway. And now it, it, you know, we do stuff for it here, which is great. And, and it was, I didn't know what it was until, until I went and listened to people. So it was good. It was good. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people found out about it on mass, like last year or a couple yeah. of years ago, it became a bigger thing. So that's exciting. It is not really news because it happened about a week ago when Simone Biles became the only woman to win the U.S. Gymnastics Championship seventh for the seventh time. And <laughs> if you haven't watched her routines or at, at all, or th- this most recent ones, these most recent ones, please do because it's really breathtaking. She's there's no one like her in the sport ever. <laughs> it, it's great to be alive when there are. When there's prodigies, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they're even trying to they're struggling with like what to do. Like some people, I think, want to like score her differently to uh, keep it more balanced yeah. or something. But you can see that, man. Yeah, That's bullshit. Don't put it on a curve, man. <laughs> no, I mean, I, okay. Be amazing. W- Let me just say, Michael Whale and the artist used to win the Hugo Award for Best Artist every single year and after a really long time he basically said guys there are other artists who are good please look at them and he kind of took himself out of the out of the running for a few years because mm. you know there's i mean how, how it's like it's like nobody's paying any attention it's like oh we recognize that name so we're going to vote for him and that's not the same as a sporting thing and I'm and I do not want Simone Biles to take herself out of competition because she's just so much better than everybody else. It's like, you I know, don't think she has any plans to do that. No, and I don't want her to. And yeah. I, you know, Great. just everybody else has to up their game. Yep. You know? So I mean, it's like it's like, you know, did they did they make Secretariat stop running because he kept winning races? Did they make Man of War stop running when he was when when that horse was winning races? No. Right. It's like, you know, let this woman, let this woman be her, let her be the best at this thing. Yeah. You know, absolutely. (laughs) So what else? Our last news item. (laughs) (laughs) 
And this is I keep I keep finding all these squirrel f- news things because this is Rob. Robin's really and into Devo squirrels. news. You're trying and to Devo like new- yes, I'm I'm I find these. News. well now i've you know now i have this relationship with the squirrels in my yard because of you you know okay (laughs) so what is the squirrel news a flying squirrel as big as a cat was last seen in 1994 and it was cross-referenced with museum specimens and it's found to be actually three squirrels three squirrel species and not just one uh the first one is the yunnan woolly flying squirrel and the second one is the Tibetan woolly flying squirrel now take their place in the scientific record alongside the newly reclassified Western woolly flying squirrel. The new squirrel lives in the mysterious gorges of Yunnan, thousands of miles from the territory of the second, who lives at altitudes of 16,000 feet at the intersection of India, Tibet, and Bhutan. So these are these, and, and we've, you might have seen on social media pictures of these really, really big squirrels. I don't think I have. That's, that I do okay. need to check out. They're and like, they're, they, if they're the size of, the, of a cat, they're like eight to 10 pounds or, or 10 and like eight to 12 <laughs> pounds of squirrel, which is That's a little scary. A lot of squirrel. <laughs> and right? they fly and they glide so they could be like flying at you. So <laughs> I do love flying squirrels. That's very cool. Well, that, that is some cool news. Thank you for that. And that's all the news we can handle today. <laughs> well, I'm very happy to have uh, Dr. Edward Vessel here on the show today. Dr. Vessel is a senior research scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics, uh, which is known as MPIEA, in Frankfurt, Germany. His research lab, the Visual Neuroaesthetics Lab, uses behavioral and brain imaging techniques to study the psychological and neural basis of aesthetic experiences, such as when a person is aesthetically moved by visual art, poetry, architecture, music, or natural landscapes. Through his work and service, Dr. Vessel aims to elevate the international profile of neuroaesthetics research. He is a board member of the International Association of Empirical Aesthetics and hosts events focused on neuroaesthetics both at MPIEA and international conferences. He has received his PhD in neuroscience at the University of Southern California and is the former co-director of the New York University Art Lab. So welcome to the show. Hi, Robin. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to talk with you. You have just published a paper about research you've done that has made a direct link between visually pleasing art and inspiration and inspiration in the viewer. Um, yes. Yeah. So would you give a little synopsis of that work? Sure. So um, I think maybe a, a tiny bit of background is, is uh, relevant first. Um, so most of the work that I've done in my lab, as you mentioned, has been on aesthetic experiences. So a person who is looking at art and perhaps being moved by it or finds it beautiful. And we find that that in general, the responses that people have tend to be highly individual and uh, that these responses are linked to kind of brain systems for internally directed thought um, and self-relevance. In particular, there's a, a brain network called the default mode network that seems to be very important. 
Um, and this paper that I published is really our first work that's trying to link what you might call receptive aesthetics, so the aesthetics of the viewer uh, with productive aesthetics or kind of creativity, the, the what's going on for the creator. Um, and there's quite a bit of work out there on creativity already, uh, but a lot of it is really focused on what makes some people more creative than others. And we were interested less in that what's called kind of trait creativity and a bit more interested in understanding the ways in which any person can at least sometimes be creative. And of course, this may fluctuate over a person's lifetime or even over the course of hours or minutes. You may have a really creative, juicy afternoon. Um and so we wanted to study more the processes that are supportive of creative thought. And we thought that by identifying some of the steps, some of the mental uh, steps in this process, that we could identify uh, parts of that process that could be subject to intervention. So, for example, you could make one of those steps uh, work better or perhaps make the transition from one stage to the next more uh, uh, fluid. Um, so there's been a variety of models out there of what types, what are the mental processes that compose the creative process. So, for example, uh, oftentimes we prepare for a problem uh, by reading background information, and then we incubate, we sit and think about it, and then maybe there's that moment of illumination, that kind of aha moment or something, and then and then maybe we do some work to verify our solution. But um, amongst these various models, there recently was a, a group that proposed a slightly different model. And they focused on moments of inspiration. And the way that they uh, think about moments of inspiration is that they are pivot points from creative ideation, so kind of brainstorming, to the actualization, the actual when the moment when you actually start working on it. And um, so we like this idea, and I think in particular we got excited because inspiration shares some, these moments of inspiration as they describe them, share a lot in common with moments of being moved uh, by a piece of artwork. So first of all, anecdotally, many people will say that they might uh, find artwork as a source of inspiration, for example. Um, but then in addition, uh, there's also these uh, similarities uh, in the process. So both being moved by artwork as well as being inspired tend to be evoked by an external object. So you read something or you look at something or you hear about something or you have a conversation and you're like, wow, that's really moving. And sometimes maybe uh, that same object can inspire you and give you some ideas. Um, and they so they're evoked. They both kind of have a feeling of transcendence in that they kind of take you out to a, to a mental state that feels a little bit different from everyday normal life. Um, there's you know physiological feelings that goes with those. And so um, we thought that perhaps they maybe are even similar brain states. And so we really, in this study, sought to see whether or not being moved by an artwork, the, the, the receptive aesthetics, can prime a state of being inspired. So that's interesting to try to capture something that people think of in this very sort of fluid way, you know, typically. Exactly. And to be able to really define it in, in a way that... Um, that is discernible and reproducible, hopefully, you know, over time. So Definitely. that's that's really interesting. Um, so I found it interesting that you you asked your subjects to produce something written rather than something visual, Definitely. right? Um, so was that an important factor rather than measuring how, say, a visual artist would have been inspired by to draw something that they, you know, after <laughs> seeing something? Yeah. So when 
So I think there's there's two two things here. So you know, when you're doing science, you have to take these very difficult concepts and you have to somehow operationalize them. And you know, you kind of you know mentioned you alluded to this difficulty. And so um, we felt that uh, if we are wanting to study how being moved by artwork, so that's something we've done a lot in my group. We show people artwork and we um, ask them to kind of tell us how aesthetically moving they find it. And we generally think that this this period of after once I show you the artwork, there's maybe a couple seconds, maybe it's five seconds, maybe it's 15 seconds, but it's a relatively isolatable period. This period is the period where you are either going to kind of have that wow feeling or not, right? And so we can kind of isolate that in time and study it um, behaviorally and study it in the brain. But um, creative processes are, are so drawn out. And so uh, this is actually one reason why we kind of got the idea to, to try to make this link in the first place, that we've had some success studying the receptive aspect of, of aesthetics, but creativity is, is, is no one process. It's multiple, multiple processes. So we thought maybe we could chop out this one little bit that we might be able to isolate in time. Um, however, um, for many people, um, you know, if we ask them to sit down and to draw something, they might they might um, say, "Okay, well, that's not something I'm really very good at." Um, or you know, if we ask people to sing, we felt that that by asking people to write, even though not everyone necessarily considers themselves a writer, it's an output format that everyone at least has some degree of comfort with. So we felt that we could take a naive. Um, person, by which we mean kind of not an expert, someone who's not an expert creative writer, um, but we could still sit them down and give them the instructions and show them some prompts and uh, uh, be able to, and ask them to write down something, to type out something. Yeah. Right, right. And so what, uh, just, uh, what's the synopsis of your result that you, you definitely were able to see that people who were inspired wrote more? Or yeah, wrote yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we did two different experiments. And in the first experiment, um, the way it works is that um, we show people uh, a prompt and you look at this prompt for 10 seconds and then you have three minutes to write. And the instructions are that you're supposed to write a little creative vignette in response to the prompt. So it's almost like you're taking part in a writing workshop. You know, you might go to a, a fancy retreat and take part in a writing workshop. Well, here you get you uh, uh, come to our lab and, and do a little writing workshop. And uh, clearly three minutes is not enough time to really write a full short story. So instead, what people are really going to do is they're going to kind of just be able to come up with some idea and start outlining, fleshing that out in a way, really just kind of like start um, uh, writing it out. And so the key here is that it's time forced. You have to do it quickly. And uh, we're not really evaluating whether or not what you produce is any good or not. We're really focused on how you felt. Did you feel like you got an inspiring idea? So after those three minutes, we asked people to make a rating of how strongly they felt inspired. Uh, so, you know, you may see a particular prompt and on this particular trial, you may run through a couple ideas in your head, a couple seconds and pick one and start going with it. And you're super excited about it. Um, and so then after the writing phase, you say that, that you were very inspired. But on another trial, you may say you're not very inspired. And so that's the basic manipulation, uh, the basic uh, uh, study design here. Um, and then the, the, the sorry, the, what we, the manipulation we did is that we had different types of prompts. So in one experiment, the prompts were artworks that you had seen been shown before and we picked the ones that you rated as being highly aesthetically pleasing so maybe you really loved a particular artwork that was 
you know, a pointillist impressionistic painting of a, of a garden and you didn't really like this one that was a, you know, a darker abstract painting with lots of, you know, red streaks or something just as an example. And so then we, we show you that pointillist impressionist painting as one of the prompts uh, in the, in the uh, writing uh, workshop, in the writing exercise. And then we contrasted that to prompts where people are shown just three words, and those words are kind of random words that don't have any association with each other. So, for example, one of the um, writing prompts that we used uh, was um, bang, salt, lettuce. So these are kind of three words that really have no relationship to each other. But of course, you could string together a story using those words. Um, so what we find, the main result from that study is that uh, we do find that people uh, say that they were more inspired following the aesthetically moving artwork prompts than these unrelated word triads. So this first experiment was kind of a proof of concept that the, the experimental paradigm could work, and we saw quite strong effects. People definitely said that they were quite a bit more inspired in their writing phase uh, for these artworks. So then we did a second experiment with the same basic setup, but now the prompts are a little bit different. So in the second experiment, um, there's three kinds of prompts. There's artworks that you said you really found aesthetically pleasing, we also now show you artworks that you rated low, that you rated poorly, the artworks that you said you didn't like. Um, and then we have a third condition, which is artworks that you haven't seen before. So in this experiment, all of the prompts are art, um, and, but you've seen some of them and you haven't seen some. So we can look at the effect of previous exposure or familiarity. And then we have uh, also this contrast between the artworks that you liked and the artworks that you didn't like. And so what we find is that familiarity didn't matter. There was no difference in how inspired you were, whether or not we showed you the painting before or not. And we can ask you after the creative writing exercise, we ask you to look at them again and rate them for aesthetic appeal. And there we find that you rate more aesthetically appealing the artworks that you found more inspiring. So we find this the same thing, that there's a strong relationship, that more aesthetically appealing artworks tend to lead towards higher feelings of being inspired. And the last thing I'll mention is that we also measured, uh, we counted how many words people typed, and we find that they tended to type more as well on the trials when they said they were more inspired uh, in response to the artworks that they found more aesthetically appealing. Nice. A couple of different questions. I, I guess it's making me think like how people could use this in practicality, like to sort of short circuit um, writer's block or, or that sort of thing. So maybe it's just about surrounding yourself with what you feel is beautiful to you. Could be an easy, not well, maybe not easy, but a way, you know, yeah, you to bet. Uh, find your way out of that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, you know, on the one hand, these results maybe sound very intuitive to people because, you know, it's, oh, well, yes, people, you know, artists especially report all the time getting inspired by the work of others, right? Um, and so I think that one of the key things about this work is that we are really documenting in a, in a scientific psychological paradigm that we can reproducibly actually find this. And so it's moving out of the realm of anecdote into the realm of we actually can understand it and, and replicate it and then perhaps even use brain imaging tools to study this process, right, and actually look and how similar these brain states are. Um, but I do think that, yes, it's also the case that, that um, 
this could be of interest in educational settings or professional settings or for even just, you know, any of us, um, you know, that first of all, yes, working with aesthetically engaging materials might really prime your, your creativity. And I think here it is interesting that we find that, you know, visual artworks could prime written creativity. Right. And so it doesn't even necessarily have to be the case that that if you're looking for inspiration, that you're looking for inspiration in the same modality. Music for you could be a good inspiration. Um, and then I think that it, it also tells us that um, allowing, for example, in educational settings, giving students uh, the opportunity to work with aesthetic materials. And I, I think th this is really important because there's such a push right now on, on STEM, which I think is really important, you know, exposing students to engineering and mathematics and science concepts is great. But I think what we're showing is that, you know, adding back in that, that arts uh, component uh, can sometimes really uh, positively impact the other components as well that you, you know, you can, uh, it, expose people to aesthetic materials and I can really uh, get the, the kind of creative inspirational juices flowing. And also you can let people kind of choose what they want to work on in that way, that they can really pick out the things that are inspiring to them. And that relates to some of our other work that we find that people are very individual in, in terms of what they, they find aesthetically appealing. That was actually one of the things I was thinking about, you know, it's, it's useful. It's, it's good to know that you, um, exposed people to some art and got an idea of what they found appealing in, to, in the beginning, you know, because one of the things I was thinking about is that I'm often drawn to visual art that you might call interesting or challenging Definitely. as opposed to beautiful or pleasing. And I was wondering if there's anything that you saw in terms of the people, um, what, what people were most drawn to. Was it sort of like the placidly beautiful things or something else or a mix? Yeah, so the whole reason that we gave people this pre-exposure phase where they got to indicate which works they find appealing is because we have documented in our own work over and over again that when it comes to artwork, at least, um, people do tend to be highly individual. And I think that this this thing you've highlighted, that some people really seek challenge. They really are looking for something which is difficult or which pushes their boundaries, something which makes them think. Um, you know, some people really go after that and other people really are much more looking for things which are a bit more uh, kind of conventionally beautiful or things which which maybe are a bit easier, which, which uh, maybe kind of wash over you a bit more. And I think even within one person, there might be times when we're looking for one thing or another. Um, so I've been thinking a lot recently about um, that, you know, aesthetics is not this monolithic entity. Uh, in particular, there, I think there is one component that I, I call information foraging, or that really is linked to curiosity, the, this drive that we have to seek out new information. And sometimes when we go to an art museum, um, we're looking for that. Or when we go to a performance, we're looking to be challenged. But, but that also is, is exhausting. It can be exhausting. And sometimes we can only do it for so long. Uh, and we have to take a break. You know, we, we're full, we're done. And so other times, I think we are really looking for stimulation, which is not so energetically, uh, um, you know, which, which doesn't require so much energy um, and which is a bit more soft. Uh, and so we've, I've been referring to this and uh, other people as well refer to this more as um, the ability of visual imagery in particular to be restoring. So for example, a walk through nature can be relaxing and restoring, uh, but not necessarily challenging. 
Um, and so I do think that there are different circumstances um, when we might like one or the other. And we do find individual differences in terms of how much people like these different types of uh, experiences. Mm-hmm. What do we know about what's happening in the brain when we're inspired? Well, great question. Um, and this is something that I'm very interested in following up on. So I, I alluded earlier briefly to the fact that um, we do a fair amount of brain imaging when people are looking at art. And one of the th- things that that we've found that seems to be quite interesting and unexpected is that um, there is a brain network that tends to be most of the time, under most circumstances, it actually is not responsive to the external world. It's a brain network that is more involved when we are focused inwardly, when we are self-reflective, um, when we are kind of thinking internally, um, even if you're like mind wandering. So if you call someone's name and they don't respond and they, they, they then kind of do that double take where it's like, oh, what? You know, they, well, they're, they're kind of internally, internally directed. And, and this brain network, the default mode network seems to be really uh, a hub of this kind of thought. And so typically, if you show someone a piece of a visual image, um, this brain network is, is actually going to become less active. Um, but we found that in these more rare circumstances when people are really strongly moved by a visual artwork, that not only is their visual system active, but also this internally oriented default mode network is also very active. And so we think that this may mean that these rare moments actually lead to a reorganization or kind of a, a, a different network dynamics in the brain, where kind of internal and externally focused networks are talking to each other. So this has not been studied for inspiration, but we do think that these might be similar brain states. And so I would predict that uh, were we to uh, look at brain activation, we would find something similar where uh, these moments of inspiration are evoked by an external object, but perhaps lead to this uh, activation and engagement of kind of internally directed thought processes in conversation with each other. Thank you so much. Um, so for people who are interested in neuroaesthetics, can you recommend resources where folks can learn more or maybe for both the layperson and for someone who really wants to get more deeply into the neuroscience of this? Sure. Um, well, um, let's see. Hmm, I have to think about that. I mean, obviously, there, there, there are some good resources, resources out there. There's... Um, uh, neuroaesthetics.net is a website run by a, a, a friend and colleague of mine in the field, uh, and um, there's quite a, a number of resources there that are collected on different topics. Um, uh, Anjan Chatterjee is a professor um, uh, that studies uh, neural aesthetics that works at um, University of Pennsylvania, and he has a, a book out um, uh, maybe two years ago called The Aesthetic Brain. Uh, that's a good resource. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've got some good review chapters out recently for those people who are more interested in diving a bit deeper. Um, we have a, I have a chapter out in, um, recently in the um, um, Encyclopedia of Behavioral Neuroscience. Um, I believe that the final version of that will actually be out this year. Um, and um, I, you can definitely visit my uh, Twitter page or my webpage and, and look for, for some more resources there. Um, I'd be happy to send people more information. Thank you so much. So what inspires you before we go? Oh, my. Um, well, um, 
you know, I'm definitely, I'm very much into music. I'm very inspired by music, um, particularly kind of electronic music. In the visual realm, it's interesting. Um, I think that when I was younger, um, uh, I've never been, I've never considered myself a visually creative individual um, in terms of like, I, I don't have much, didn't, didn't think I had much artistic skill. I think that's changed some. And I actually think through this work, I've really gotten much more into and learned a lot more about um, visual art. Um, my inspiration in visual art tends to come a lot from what you might call like participatory art or kind of more temporary art. A lot of the artists that you see out at a place like Burning Man or something like that. Um, but I also recently have very much gotten into um, some more uh, classical forms of art. Um, one of my favorites is um, um, uh, people like Klimt and Max Weber and um, um, you know, it's kind of just st stuff like that that is um, kind of right on the edge, somewhere between representation and abstraction, where you're kind of really playing with the the building blocks of perception and breaking things apart and creating these very ambiguous uh, um, paintings that that um, somehow surprise us in, with their strangeness, yet also their ability to capture fundamental aspects of, of how perception links with the emotional response that we have. That sounds fantastic. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing so much. And um, I'm going to really look into this some more and hopefully read your work and see what you've you're got going on. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robin. It's been great. This podcast is sponsored by not looking at the news until after 5 p.m. Working at home? Want to get anything done today? Maybe you should consider not looking at news until after 5 p.m. Daily users report lower blood pressure and higher productivity. On sale now, wherever and whenever you have the discipline. And now back to our podcast. Welcome to the Artscape. This is our segment where Wendy and I talk with each other about our art and what we're creating, how we feel about the artistic things that we do. And today I'm going to be talking with Wendy about her work. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Wendy. Thanks. <laughs> so I'm really curious. I've been listening to your music and thinking about all no. the things that you do and create. And I'm wondering, do you have a moment or a story around when you knew the arts were for you? Oh, no. Probably sometime in high school. I have somewhere in the bowels of this house, if, well, if, if I'm lucky and everyone else is unlucky, there exists a notebook with me writing this story. And it's basically, you know, my... 15 year old wet dream, you know, because there was the locker in my school that opened up into a room 
it's like you go through the locker and then there's like this huge room that's a recording studio and all of this stuff and i have a band and i have all these things <laughs> and and uh the band thing never really came to fruition until i hit 30 so it was it was like something that was in the back of my mind but i guess i let uh parents and boyfriends influence me in my career choice mm. so you they know? were telling you to do something more practical you mean they went sort of they wanted me to go into engineering so, okay <laughs> so that's what happened mm. um and i also had this this ridiculous notion that i didn't need any formal training to be in the arts because i guess that was maybe how my family thought of it. I mean, also my mom, my mom taught theater and she taught English. So, and she used to like, well, she was a playwright and she, she was involved in, in theater arts for a very long time, which probably, probably give, gave her the idea that she didn't want her kids going into theater. <clears throat> you know, um. she wanted us to be able to support ourselves. So um, and don't I'm do actually, what I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, no. I mean, she. Well, it's not like don't do what I did. She actually, she was you know, in a she had. She was an, an educator for a long time. I mean, she was doing theater from, from an education point of view. You know, she taught drama at a New York middle school, where apparently Al Pacino was in there, and he was in one of her productions, and as a as a kid. And yeah, that was the, the claim to fame that she didn't even remember him until there was a, a reunion of the, the drama class and her students said, you know, Al Pacino was in her class. And she goes, oh, really? Funny. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was not encouraged to go into the arts. I took an art class in college that I had to drop because if you missed more than three classes, he was going to flunk you. And I and I slept through a third uh, the third class during it was early enough in the in the draw in the period in the marking period for me to drop the class without consequences. So I had to drop the class. But I was doing some interesting drawings at, in the at the beginning of that. I remember that I have some of them, and they're not they're not awful. And then I had a friend who went to more College of Art, and she's like the same age as me. And I always thought like, oh, I'm going to make more money as an engineer and all this stuff. And her salary had kept pace with mine throughout our entire lives. So, you know, if you do shit right, you don't have to be a starving artist, although I haven't figured that out yet. Hmm. <laughs> true, true. Well, Moore, I, I have great memories of Moore, actually. I used to model there. So, Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's a, it was a cool school. I liked it. So one of the things that you did is, is a band called Music for the Goddess. Yes. And I'm curious about what drew you to making music that's specific to pagan culture and spirituality. It was because the music that was available when I started the band, which has to be 1998, the, the liturgical music for the pagan community was all very dirge-like. Like the, like the circle is open, but, uh, you know, it was, everything was in D minor and it was all very <laughs> sad. And I wanted to have some upbeat fucking music to play, <laughs> to do in ritual. And that's, and, and even that I was just talking to, to my daughter about 
how the band name came about because I put an ad in the East Coast Rocker, which is the oh, local yeah. music magazine, music uh-huh. newspaper of the time in the in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was the Aquarian before that, right? Yeah. And so I put an ad in the in the East Coast Rocker, and it said the title was Sacred Music for the Goddess, and I was looking for uh, various musicians, and I wasn't really it's like eclectic, this, that, and this. And everybody that contacted me figured out, they they just had already assumed that Music for the Goddess was the band name. And I just sort of gave up because I hadn't even named, I didn't want to name the band yet. It was just me and I wanted to find people. Right, <laughs> and it right. was like, so, okay, it turned into Music for the Goddess. Okay, fine. You know, so that's kind of how it started. And and it we we did two albums or, or we did, as a group, we did one album and then I did another solo album under the band name oh okay that's interesting yeah, the second yeah. album is that's why that's why the back of the album has that weird photoshop picture of a million copies of me standing on the back because it's basically me multi-tracking the hell out of everything oh so, okay that's like, yeah i was gonna ask you the differences and sort of how that progressed from the first album <laughs> to the second so and i it's curious to me that you met everyone from a newspaper ad because i kind of thought you were in the community and you sort of met each other that way so this is a uh well it was a combination of both uh-huh. let me think about that because i know i ran the ad and i'm trying to think i think i was getting the guitar players through the ad but a lot of the core of the band came from a drum circle at sue wolfson's house okay sue wolfson is a local pagan person she's and she's sort of the nexus she was a nexus it's yeah. like if Often you know her weird sue in the community yes if you know if you know weird sue you are now one one degree removed from pretty much everybody in the new jersey pennsylvania new york pagan community yes she knows everybody and and the producer from my demo tape went, okay, this is even before Music for the Goddess. Uh, when I was, it, oh, it had to be after Sonic Veil. Hang on a second. <laughs> I'm thinking here. Um, yeah, I was in a band called Sonic Veil at the Jersey Shore for like a year or two. And um, we played like the Stone Pony and stuff. And that was, and we, we ended up breaking up because, you know, we did a gig with Ginger Baker, had a, had a, project going around and we had won some showcase so they we opened for them and and the what the percussionist playing with them that was a weird set they had it was ginger baker on drums this guy on percussion and two bass players and that was their band and it it very rhythmy it was very interesting music well one of the one of the bass players was going through a bunch of boxes and and made a synthesizer-y thing that he was controlling with his bass. It was it was weird experimentally jazz kind of stuff. That that percussionist, you know, he's, you know, he's he's a fairly well known in in a small community of percussionists. I think he played on a Rolling Stones album and he, you know, he's he's been around and he lived in Florida and he wanted to get in my pants and he kept telling me you know, that you're better than the rest of these guys. You need to do your own project and blah, blah, blah. And I ate that whole thing up and I kind of just said, we're done. And I start, you know, and started going off on my own into complete obscurity for a few years. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, so I, we were at this drum circle and I think with Dax was there and Brian was there and, you know, my husband was there 
So that was pretty much the band. And we were just drumming and and with other people too. But that drum circle ended up being really, really, it was like the best one I was ever at. Because it didn't get like at it, you know, there wasn't somebody who was like dominating the thing and it didn't turn into um, what I call engine music. Oh, where right. everything where just sounds like like that's you know what like 3 a.m at, at free spirit festival that's what you hear from the drum circle because the testosterone group is in there saying i can drum faster than you and so it turns into that endurance contest and it's awful but this one it was like we were having a conversation with our drums the four of us and everybody else was like playing too, but it's like the four of us were really having this conversation with our drums. You know, one of us would play a riff and somebody else would pick it up and play with it and change it a little bit and throw it back. And it was, we had a really good musical rapport. And I think from that, we kind of said, you know what, let's do this thing. And and we got together in my house, we wrote some songs and I had a few songs anyway from before. And, and then we had an album, boom. And then we played out a little bit at festivals and, and then we didn't. That that band was. I wasn't the smartest person about picking people. Let me say. Mm. <laughs> it was well, no, it was like I would meet somebody, or I had you know the guitar player would bring his friend, his girlfriend, and or we're camping together, and then you know she just built an ashiko at this festival, and I said, "You're in the band. Come on, play." <laughs> so, and, and she didn't know any of our songs she's just like standing there like you see this video she looks like you know deer in the headlights kind of just playing quietly in the background trying not to screw anything up but i didn't care and then i found out she played the flute so then she was like definitely in the band oh, so okay. so then she had to take flute lessons so she wouldn't embarrass herself but <laughs> well the flute was something that i really noticed and i i sort of wound up thinking like if i were going to write a review i would have called it pagan prog folk <laughs> I was wondering, is that which of, album is that? The Goddess Mandala, definitely. That's okay. the first what I was thinking about. I don't think there's flute on that, but oh, that's something. There's some type it's of keyboards. It's keyboards. Oh, keyboards. Okay. keyboards. Got it. Uh, that one, <laughs> Goddess Mandala, was um, my drummer Brian was also the recording engineer for that album, and we recorded all of the pieces of that, like little pieces. And I said, put it together in some interesting way. <laughs> that's why it ends up being 15 minutes long. But yeah, we didn't, we didn't like, that's like the jam. Oh, the song, song. itself. Yes. Goddess Mandala. Yes. Okay. Yes. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That is a, that is a jam tune. Yeah. Definitely. Apparently that saved somebody's marriage. That song I got, I got fan mail from them. That's great. <laughs> He said it was the sex. It was the most erotic song he had ever heard. And it, and let's say the letter said, I don't know when you play this live, how your audience keeps their clothes on. So <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> That's cool. That's a great yeah, compliment. I love it. It really, really is. Uh, it, 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 I think about that whenever I start to, you know, go, ah, I'm going to sell all my instruments. And I have to remember that guy's fan mail. Right, so right. just, just remember that if you, if there are artists that you like, my listeners tell them because you have no idea <laughs> this is i swear to god i've gotten like three pieces of fan mail in my life and that was one of them and it sustained me for decades so feed your feed your artists 
Yes, <laughs> definitely. Oh, I have other sort of weird questions, but how about this one? <laughs> it's almost like an the Goddess Mandala is almost like an album inside of an album. I found that really unique because it's very pagany. It's got some really interesting like time signatures, like even Tide of May is like in six four or something. It's like different, you know. It's yeah. like cool stuff. And then it has this interlude where it really goes into like very pop rock, pop ballad <laughs> things, starting with Baby I'm Falling, you know? Uh-huh. And I'm curious, like, why did you decide to kind of take it out of the ritual space and then come back and end with Goddess Mandala, the song? That's oh. Unique. Uh, well, because, well, because Goddess Mandala is really long and I wanted that to be the ending of it. Uh, the three pop songs are actually before it's the project that was before music for the goddess. And I had, Mm. and Brian was my recording engineer and, and um, I hadn't met Sue yet. Even I don't think at that time, because I found, I forget how I found Brian. Oh, I remember how I found Brian. He was in my NLP class and it was one of these things where timing was really important because I had met Rich literally two weeks before I started this class. And if it had been the other way around, I probably would have ended up hooking up with Brian. Interesting. Instead of Rich. So <laughs> that was like, and I honestly think I dodged a bullet, but <laughs> <laughs> Brian was a little, he, he didn't seem like my ex very much when I first met him. But after a while, once I finally, once he finally lost his temper in my presence, I realized, oh, he's a lot more like my ex than I had even thought at the beginning. So mm-hmm. he would have been another, you know, how how you can repeat cycles in your relationships. Mm-hmm. He would have definitely been another repeat of the previous relationship I had gotten out of instead of me meeting this other guy who is not like my exes at all. Right. So, so that was a really good thing. But I met him at NLP class and it was, I think, because I, you know, he approached me because I had this leather jacket with artwork that I copied from King Crimson's art, Lark's Tongue and Aspic, the the sun and moon. Mm-hmm. The, it's like, a, I guess it's like a Buddhist thing, but it was on the cover of the King Crimson album. And that's where I knew it from. And I put it on the back of my jacket and he saw that and he knew I liked King Crimson. So he wanted to talk to me about King Crimson. And that's kind of how we got and he said, oh, well, I'm a recording engineer and I have a studio, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, I want to do a demo tape and do this Genie's Evil Sister project kind of thing. And, and <laughs> so those Genie's three Evil songs, Sister? Yeah, that was, that was, uh, God, that was when I was, I was single and I was trying to just get a band happening. And I made a demo tape and I went to the National Association of Campus Activities. NACA to oh, yeah. book to book a college tour. So I had this five song demo and those three songs were in there. And uh so that's why they went up on the album because I paid a lot of money to get them produced and they were good. <laughs> so that's why they're there. All right. <laughs> Very cool. So you also draw, quilt, and create other objects. And uh, what <laughs> what are the arts you're most interested in pursuing right now? Oh boy. Art, painting, watercolor is is what I'm currently working on. I have a children's book called My Family is a Rainbow, 
that, and it's June, and I should, and probably by next June, I'll have it done if with any luck, if I can actually keep to the schedule I want. It's a children's book that I wrote the words for. Oh my God. It's almost, it can't, it's almost 20 years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's just been sitting there. And I might have been, you know, I don't know if I had already originally started it thinking about it as a children's book or or just a sort of a poem-esque kind of thing. It's kind of has a rhythm, but no real rhyme scheme. Or it's lyrics, you know, because it keeps going, my family is a rainbow. And then it talks about some specific aspect of that. Mm-hmm. And it's very, it's very, it's a very tolerant book and it's a kid's book and it's a it's a book to introduce kids to what family can be you know that they don't you don't have to live together you don't have to have a mommy and a daddy you could have you know you could be raised by your parents or relatives or whatever and and it's all the different combinations of of family and and how people practice spirituality and stuff like that will require, I believe, 28 paintings. So, which is one of the reasons why it's taking so freaking long to get it done. That's that's like my main painting project that I want to do. And I would probably, once it's done or getting really close to done, I'm probably going to try to crowdfund the publication of it. And if it does well, then maybe a real publisher will pick it up. So, but that's... That's an art project that I'm working on. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. I, then maybe I'll save your your other drawing series that I've oh. seen you do for for another time because I okay. do want to learn about those too. But I mean, All just right. to mention them briefly, like you you draw some robots and you draw some oh. dragons and you do some <laughs> other things like that. Oh, and, yeah. But yeah, it that's sounds just... like it's the book that's really what is uh, feeding your heart the most right now. It is. It is. But what's feeding my family right now is my coloring books and stickers, which are available on my Etsy store. So, okay, cool. <laughs> so those, those, I don't know that I did a robot sticker yet, but uh, other things I have. I will buy the, other... the robot. I love your robot. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> the robots are easy. Cause it's like when you're drawing a, a, a human, you want to, you do the cylinders and the balls for the joints. Mm-hmm. And I realized when you do that, it kind of looks like a robot. So <laughs> it's just like a non-rendered person. They're really <laughs> easy to do. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's cool. Well, I I really appreciate seeing what you're, you know, what you've done and learning more about what you're up to. And I'm always just sort of, fat, just sort of amazed. It's just like things I don't do. I, I, I don't, quilt or whatever like but it's really cool that you make so many things and i'm gonna end with that today but i will definitely talk with you more about what you're working on and what you do and uh thanks always good stuff thank you i appreciate it and uh wait before we go it's my etsy store is wendy cards with a z dot etsy.com and there's usually some sales going on and the coloring books are fun Yes, they are. You should, and you should get them. <laughs> you should definitely get them. And we will definitely put the link on the show notes for Wendy's oh, work. Thank please, you. please support her. Thanks. Good stuff. You've 
been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Thomas Limoncelli. Web hosting by InMotion. And remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash leftscape. Thanks for listening.